The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Saishin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SubChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup of news and a selection of full stories, plus conversations with reporters and editors from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news. I am Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, our weekly review of business stories from Caixin and beyond. China has issued regulations to strengthen scrutiny over overseas investments by state-owned enterprises as part of the government's ongoing fight against capital outflows and financial risks. Officials will be held accountable for decisions that lead to financial losses if the officials were negligent in performing their duties or where deals were done in violation of regulations, the Ministry of Finance said last week. The new rules also require companies to conduct due diligence into the economic, industrial, tax, legal, political, and other risks of overseas projects before investing. Beijing's resolve to build a world-class microchip sector has touched off a $100 billion spending spree on new production facilities in a massive investment wave likely to create short-term equipment and material shortages and potentially lead to a longer-term global glut. Some 17 new chip plants have been recently announced and are getting set to get built over the next two years. Names behind some of the projects include global heavyweights like Taiwan's TSMC and U.S.-based Global Foundries. But many of the plants are being built by more local, less experienced players, led by a group of companies based at the prestigious Tsinghua University. Those and other domestic investors have tried to buy related global assets like U.S. memory giant Micron Technology and Germany's Extron SE over the last three years, only to see many of the deals vetoed by Western governments wary about Chinese ownership. In response, Chinese companies have redirected much of their effort into a construction spree at home using a mix of local and imported expertise. The 17 new plants alone will include a combined investment of at least 110 billion U.S. dollars. China's real estate market continued to cool in July, with sales of new and existing homes slumping amid the government's campaign to contain a property bubble in a growing number of cities. Nationwide, new home sales, as measured by floor space, dropped 46% in first-tier cities, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and Shenzhen, and by 23% in 16 key second-tier cities, including Hangzhou and Nanjing. 
Speaking of property, property developer Sunak, which has agreed to acquire Dali and Wanda's theme parks for 6.5 billion U.S. dollars, plans to roll over some of its existing debt by issuing 1 billion dollars in new bonds. Sunak's recent acquisition spree has sparked concern among credit ratings agencies. Before it bought Wanda's theme park business, the company acquired a stake in cash-strapped La Echo for 2.2 billion dollars in March. Before those deals, Sunak's debt-to-asset ratio was already high, 87% as of the end of 2016. Chinese brands consolidated their place as the world's fastest-rising force in the global smartphone market, accounting for more than a quarter of sales on a rapid expansion beyond China. At the same time, the latest results also showed that leading Chinese brands Huawei and Oppo made strong gains both at home and abroad. While former high flyer Xiaomi returned to the global top five as its recent turnaround takes hold. And speaking of smartphones, let's turn to Doug Young, senior editor at Caixin, who's going to tell us about Huawei and rumors of eavesdropping software. Doug, tell us what's up with Huawei. So this week's story uh, comes straight from the gossip columns.、Uh, it actually originated in some online chatter, saying that. Huawei, the fast-rising smartphone company that's that's actually now the world's third biggest smartphone maker, that they were secretly installing eavesdropping software in their smartphones, and the idea was that it's you know software that can record what apps a person is using, it can look at their photos,、uh, you know, look at their movements and so forth. And what was a bit unusual, because you, you see this kind of online chatter all the time. There's all sorts of rumors, but Huawei actually came out with a statement, which you don't often see, because companies will often just ignore these rumors. Because by discussing a rumor, you sort of give it credibility in some ways. But、uh, Huawei came out with a very definitive statement, saying, you know, this is completely untrue. They were working with the police to try and identify the source of the rumors. And then also they sort of implied that maybe these rumors were being put into the market by one of its competitors.、Um, just as a footnote, there China's smartphone market is very, very, very competitive. So there are probably plenty of companies that might benefit if、uh, Huawei got some negative publicity and lost a bit of market share to some of the other guys. Why do you think this particular rumor has struck a nerve? They were definitely touching on a very sensitive issue. You know, this is China, the land where state and enterprise the lines aren't always that clear, and you do read stories in China all the time about companies secretly stealing customer data. But usually, that's from apps that people download onto their smartphones. So, in a way, they're responsible for that. But this is a you know an even more basic case of just when you buy the smartphone off the shelf. It's already got that eavesdropping software in there, so anything involving eavesdropping in a place like China is going to be sensitive. I think in this case, the question is especially pertinent for Huawei. There was a case like three or four years ago where the U.S. came right out, Washington came out, and basically banned all Chinese networking equipment. Huawei was originally a, a maker of you know the big networking equipment that big mobile carriers use to set up their networks, and the U.S. banned Huawei all Huawei equipment from the U.S. And their argument was that. This could contain listening devices for China. You know, it contained a national security risk. 
so that happened a few years ago, and, and Huawei has never really contested that. I mean, they've, they've said it's not true, but they've never really tried to get that ban lifted. So instead, what they had ended up doing was, was sort of putting more focus on their consumer devices, because consumer devices are a little less sensitive. You know, it's a one-off thing. It's one person using it as opposed to a, an entire national network. So for now, people to be coming out and saying these consumer devices could also pose a lot of privacy risks, you know, is probably hitting a bit of a, a nerve with Huawei. They've been through this once. Their smartphones really are on a bit of a roll. Like I said, they've become the world's third biggest smartphone brand right now. So if they get hit in the same way with smartphones as they did with networking equipment, I doubt they're going to be very happy about that. Thanks, as always, Doug. Let's turn now to Fran Wong, macroeconomics reporter. Fran, you've got a quick update on China's manufacturing data. How are things looking? Okay, uh, China's manufacturing activity was the strongest in four months in July, as the Caixin China General Manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index hit 51.1 last month on the back of strong foreign demand for Chinese goods. Okay, sounds healthy. Can you speak a bit more about why things were relatively strong? An important factor is that strong foreign demand drove companies to accelerate production. Also, companies increased their inventories as the quantity of purchases rose for the second straight month in July at a faster pace than in the previous month. So what's the bigger picture here for this manufacturing data and China's broader economy? It seems that the Chinese economy has maintained its momentum at the start of the third quarter after gross domestic product increased at a stronger than expected pace of 6.9% in the second quarter, which exceeded the government's 2017 target of around 6.5%. However, manufacturers remained cautious about their business outlook because optimism about the outlook over the next 12 months fell again and hit an 11-month low in July. Thanks, Fred. And now for our selection of important stories from Caixin Global for the week. We'll look at the recent run-up in China internet stocks. Is this a bubble or just the beginning of a long stretch of growth? We'll hear about the rivalry between different methods of payment in China's booming mobile payment market, the QR codes that MasterCard is pushing, or the touch-and-go technology promoted by UnionPay. We'll hear why the former chief executive of Hong Kong's Monetary Authority thinks Hong Kong should have pursued more stimulus. We'll give you the latest on Tencent's acquisition of game companies in the UK, and we'll tell you how many elderly women in rural China are suffering from depression. From business and tech, China's huge internet stock run-up, Room to Grow or Ready to Blow, by Yang Ge. Strong results have sent major Chinese internet stocks to all-time highs this year, fueled by investors who increasingly believe the China online story has legs and is consolidating around a handful of major players. Analysts said the rally, which has seen shares for the country's top five internet companies jump as much as 76% this year, could be real and not just a bubble. Underlying that logic is revenue and profits that continue to grow by strong double-digit amounts despite the huge size already achieved by names like social networking giant Tencent and e-commerce leader Alibaba, the two biggest players. Such gains look similar to those seen by Western giants like Facebook and Google, which also continue to grow by healthy amounts despite their large size. 
But while Facebook and Google are largely stealing advertising and marketing dollars from traditional media companies, the Chinese giants are capitalizing on a similar power play combined with new wealth being created by a local economy that is growing far faster than ones in the West. There are some stocks pricing in some great expectations, but on average, it doesn't ring any alarm bells for me, said Ryan Roberts, an analyst at MCM Partners, commenting on the recent rally. The technology sector in China is core to not only economic goals, but also policy. Supporting tailwinds we've seen thus far could persist for some time to come. The rally has made global superstars out of Alibaba Group Holding Limited and Tencent Holdings Limited, which exemplify the type of bullish sentiment surrounding the group. The pair entered the list of the world's 10 most valuable companies earlier this year and have continued an upward march since then. At the latest levels, each is now worth nearly $400 billion, making them the world's 8th and ninth most valuable companies respectively, according to Bloomberg. That puts them in a league with such titans as Apple Inc., Google Parent Alphabet Inc., Facebook Inc., and Amazon Inc., which are all still ranked ahead. China's entry to that elite club has been fueled in part by a rally that has seen Alibaba shares rise by 76% this year, while Tencent has jumped by an equally enviable 66%. Other big gainers include number 2 e-commerce firm JD.com Inc., up 74% since January, number 2 online game firm NetEase Corp., up 45%, and leading search engine giant Baidu Inc., up 38%. Healthy growth ahead. Quarterly earnings reports that continue to wow investors are a major factor behind the results, say analysts who follow the group. If you look at the reports, they all beat expectations, said Eleanor Leong, an analyst at CLSA. Alibaba has been the star of the show, reporting revenue and operating profits that rose 60% and 86% respectively in this year's first quarter. Tencent wasn't far behind, reporting revenue growth of 44% and operating profit growth of 56%. Both companies are expected to report their second quarter results later this month. Equally important are roadmaps into the future as the internet giants try to chart where their money will come from to keep the growth alive. All could face some headwinds on that front as China's internet and mobile markets become increasingly saturated. The nation already boasts the world's largest internet user base, with 731 million web surfers at the end of last year, a hefty 96% of whom do their web surfing on smartphones. But that breakneck growth is showing signs of slowing, forcing companies to chart clear futures for investors. I think the rally is mainly in anticipation of solid set of upcoming results and better visibility into growth drivers said Karen Chan, an analyst at mid-sized research house Jefferies. Tencent has been in the headlines lately for its hugely popular mobile game Honor of Kings, which has done so well that the company preemptively took steps to curb playing time among young people to avoid negative publicity and gaming addiction. Baidu has sounded a future focused on artificial intelligence, while Alibaba is pinning its hopes on a global expansion for its core e-commerce business. The hype has driven valuations to relatively high levels, led again by Alibaba and Tencent, which now trade at price-to-earning ratios of 66 and 55, respectively, based on earnings forecasts for this year. But MCM's Roberts pointed out that the multiples come down significantly when calculated based on analyst profit forecasts for 2018, closer to still high but more reasonable levels in the mid-30s. Broadly speaking, I don't think valuations are excessive for most of the Chinese technology stocks that we're tracking, he said. 
When considering the double-digit profit growth the companies are expected to deliver, the multiples may look less extreme. From Finance, MasterCard ups ante on QR codes in Asia by Zhang Yujie and Aries Poon. Beijing, which payment technology, scan to pay or touch and go? Bank card network operators like UnionPay, Visa, and MasterCard are preoccupied with exactly this question, while they are increasingly squeezed out by third-party payment service providers. MasterCard, the world's third largest bank card network operator after UnionPay and Visa, plans to roll out its QR code-based service across Asia more aggressively in coming years. The rationale is clear: people no longer bring wallets, and businesses and consumers are getting more used to doing business with smartphones by scanning QR codes. Its bigger rival, UnionPay, is betting on touch-and-go technology. However. The plan is to reroute and attract more traffic through UnionPay's interbank fund transfer network, and to push for a wider adoption of its near-field communication, or NFC, payment technology, known as QuickPass. Bank card networks are losing market share to third-party payment providers, which have been growing at an exponential rate. In China, the practice of using smartphones to scan QR codes to make payments grew 113% in the first quarter from the same period a year ago, to 2.2 billion yuan, or 338 million, according to consulting firm iResearch. WeChat Pay and Alipay, owned by Tencent Holdings Limited and Ant Financial Services Group, respectively, accounted for a combined market share of 94%. But plastic cards are not yet a lost cause. In 2016, 115.5 billion transactions were completed with debit and credit cards, still more than the 25.71 billion transactions completed with mobile payment methods, according to data from the central bank. However, the number of mobile transactions jumped 86% from the year before, dwarfing the 35% growth of card-based transactions. The Mastercard plan. India is the only Asian country that has adopted MasterPass QR, Mastercard Scan to Pay program launched in 2016. The company said recently that it plans to expand to Thailand and Indonesia by the end of this year and to Hong Kong next year. Essentially, the consumer scans a QR code with his or her smartphone at the merchant, and then the payment is processed through the Mastercard network. More traffic, more revenues. At the same time, Mastercard is pushing for more standardized QR code specifications. These standards ensure consistency in QR codes, both generated and captured on a consumer's mobile phone. The company added. In fact, Africa is one of the first markets into which MasterPass ventured. QR code-based transactions gain ground more easily in less developed countries because merchants are not required to buy expensive terminals or card readers, while a high penetration of smartphones enables a fast adoption of scan-to-pay method. Analysts say, China is still a difficult market. Despite China's affluence and fast adoption of mobile payments, non-Chinese card network operators like Mastercard and Visa were shut out of the country's growing card-clearing traffic monopolized by state-controlled UnionPay until May. Back in 2012, the World Trade Organization ruled that China was violating WTO rules by requiring all UN bank card transactions to be handled by the UnionPay network. It said the Chinese government should break UnionPay's anu. It said the Chinese government should break UnionPay's monopoly by August 2015, but the opening up has been slow. In June 2016, Beijing issued guidelines on what companies are eligible for providing clearing services for UN-denominated bank card transactions. 
Access wasn't granted to non-Chinese players until May. Market watchers warned of restrictions to expanding in China, including potentially an absence of an even playing field for foreign network operators. Working through Chinese government red tape and gaining more bank and merchant acceptance could be difficult. It will likely take a long time for Visa and Mastercard to gain significant market share there, analysts said. From finance, quick take: ex-head of Hong Kong Monetary Authority says city government should have done more to stimulate economy. The Hong Kong government, which has been sitting on massive fiscal reserves over the past decade, should have spent more or taxed less to further stimulate the export-dependent economy. The former chief of Hong Kong's de facto central bank said, Joseph Yam, who was chief executive of the Hong Kong Monetary Authority from 1993 to 2009. Wrote in his blog that the city's government had been holding its purse strings too tightly. That approach no longer keeps up with the time and could lead to fiscal drag, a condition in which a lack of state spending or too much taxation increases deflationary pressure. Although the government managed to avoid a fiscal deficit even in the toughest economic periods, it has failed to spend more to inject more life into the economy. Yam added. Basically, there is no rule in the Basic Law that requires the government of the Special Administrative Region to achieve a balanced budget every year. A more reasonable approach should be maintaining a balance between income and expenditures over a medium-length economic cycle. He wrote in his Chinese language blog, "The Basic Law is the de facto constitution governing Hong Kong." As of March, the city's fiscal reserves stood at a record high, Hong Kong $936 billion. 119.7 billion U.S. dollars. The government said earlier, according to another document from the Legislative Council, the city's lawmaking body, nearly 300 billion Hong Kong dollars was dispersed to residents and businesses as one-time relief and tax refunds over the past 10 years. From business and tech, Tencent's global gaming drive passes through UK by Yang Ge. Internet giant Tencent Holdings Limited has invested in two British game developers, further building its pipeline of global connections to consolidate its position as China's leading online game operator. In the latest of its two purchases, Tencent will make an unspecified investment in Milky Tea, the Liverpool, England-based developer said in an announcement to coincide with the release of its latest title. Last week, Cambridge, England-based Frontier Development separately announced that it would sell nine percent of itself to Tencent for seventeen point seven million pounds, or twenty-three point three million U.S. dollars, through the issue of new shares. This partnership marks a turning point in Milky Tea's history, said Milky Tea founder Jonathan Holmes. It allows us, as a team, to focus on making the kind of high-quality games that we've always dreamed of making. The hard work starts now as we take the studio on to the next level. Our best work is definitely yet to come. With Tencent supporting us, it's like the studio just got some rocket fuel. Tencent counts gaming as its largest single income source and is currently the biggest operator in China, followed by NetEase Inc. The company generated 22.8 billion yuan, or 3.39 billion U.S. dollars, in online game revenue in its latest reporting quarter, up 24% from a year earlier, and accounting for nearly half of its total revenue. 
Tencent has made related headlines in recent weeks for its self-developed game, Honor of Kings, which has become so popular that the company voluntarily imposed playing limits on minors to deflect criticism over gaming addiction. Tencent has already exported that game to other Asian markets and is reportedly preparing a launch in North America and Europe. In addition to its self-developed titles, Tencent licenses games from third parties for rights to operate them in China. It also invests in many of those offshore developers to give it preferential access to their games. The company has previously invested in global leader Activision Blizzard and last year made headlines when it led a group that bought 84% of Finland's Supercell for 8.6 billion U.S. dollars. The Chinese gaming market grew 27% in the first half of this year to be worth nearly 100 billion yuan, as the number of gamers reached 500 million, according to a recently released government statistic. From people, rural grandmothers suffer quiet depression in fast-evolving China, by Huang Shulun and Li Rongde, Qinba Mountains. Fifty-four-year-old Zhou Xiu would like to go dancing with her friends at dusk on the public square, or learn calligraphy at a college for seniors like many of her peers in cities do. But Zhou lives in a rural backwater in the Qinba Mountains in China's impoverished northwest. She's been crushed under the double burden of farming while taking care of her one-year-old granddaughter all alone. Joe's husband, two grown sons and daughter-in-law, toil in a city far away. They visit her only once or twice a year. Day and night, I have too many things to do and to worry about, she told Saishin. I feel like I live for everyone else but myself. Joe is among a growing number of women struggling alone with solitude deteriorating health, and poverty in China's vast countryside that has been hollowed out by the country's rapid push for urbanization. Mental health issues among women left alone to care for a grandchild were even more acute, with one in three showing signs of depression, according to the Rural Education Action Program, REAP. The study used an internationally accepted measure, known as DASS-21, to assess the severity of depression, anxiety, and stress. Researchers interviewed 1,062 women, including 268 grandmothers in 42 impoverished villages in Qinba, a vast mountainous area straddling parts of the northwestern provinces of Shanxi and Gansu, as well as the southwestern province of Sichuan. Some of the grandmothers left behind were as young as 33 years old, given that early marriage was common in some rural pockets of China. Others were in their 80s and struggling with ill health while trying to look after babies between six months and two years old. Aggravated by Poverty Researchers attributed the higher prevalence of depression among these caregivers to poverty, separation from family, and lack of community support in many rural communities, which have disintegrated into ghost towns amid a rapid urbanization. An estimate by the Ministry of Civil Affairs in 2015 put the number of adult women left behind in rural areas nationwide at 47 million. A lack of public awareness about mental health issues and community support means that many sufferers are dealing with their conditions in silence. The growing epidemic of anxiety and depression is also affecting the cognitive development of children in their care, according to academics. In Joe's village, Once a community of more than 3,000 residents, many people in their prime have left to work in cities. Her husband, two sons, and daughter-in-law are all working in Xi'an, the provincial capital of Shanxi in northwest China. 
Zhou herself used to work as a shop assistant in Xi'an before returning home more than a year ago when her granddaughter was born because it was too expensive for a family of migrant laborers to raise a child in the city. She had to care for the baby by herself round the clock and also tend the family's farm from time to time. Zhou only saw her husband, a construction worker, once or twice a year when he was between jobs, she said. She worried the most about saving enough to build a house for her second son. A new home is essential for a young man to find a wife. Joe's second son was already 27 years old, an age perceived to be too old for the rural marriage market. According to her, a new home in her village costs between 200,000 yuan, $29,755, and 400,000 yuan to build. People in Joe's village earned 8,200 yuan per person on average last year, less than two-thirds of the national average for rural residents, according to the latest figures from the National Bureau of Statistics. Meanwhile, urban dwellers in China had an average annual disposable income of 33,616 yuan. The more I think about these things, the more I get depressed and the less I sleep every night, she said. Joe said she only heard about depression when the research team from REAP raised the issue with her, but she has no plans to seek treatment or help. She doesn't trust the health services offered at the public clinic in her village or township, and she can't afford to go to a larger county or city hospital. In Shanxi province alone, the local health authority recorded 119,829 cases of people living with mental disorders, including severe or chronic depression, in March 2015. Over four-fifths are living in rural areas, official statistics show. Nearly half of the counties and districts in the province don't have a mental health clinic, and there are only 64 qualified psychiatrists at community-level clinics for the province of more than 37 million people. A 30-year-old mother from a village in Chinba, who only gave her first name, Nana, is taking care of her two boys alone. Her husband has been working in a factory in eastern Jiangsu province and earns 5,000 yuan per month. Their second son, who was born prematurely in November 2015, suffers from asthma and anemia. The family had already spent more than 50,000 yuan last year and nearly another 10,000 yuan this year on the boy's treatment because the medical insurance for rural residents didn't cover those ailments. Nana had to stay behind to raise the two boys with only her mother to help her because it's too expensive for her family to live in Jiangsu. Nana often fights with me for no apparent reason or accuses me of not doing enough to help her, Su Jin, Nana's mother, said. Researchers who interviewed Nana last year said she was moderately depressed, which led to her aggressive behavior. The women who stay back in their villages are the ones who suffer the most because they can't just leave to work elsewhere and they are burdened by family responsibilities, Li Jun, the wife of a local village official, told Saixin. On top of the loneliness and stress, there are few rewards for them because they don't earn any money. Many rural women left alone to take care of young children or aging parents have a strong sense of insecurity and loneliness because they have no one to turn to for comfort, according to Wang Gong, president of Beijing's Anding Hospital, a hospital specializing in mental disorders. If they don't receive proper medical help for a long time, they will certainly become depressed, he said. Wang was not involved in the REAP study. Falling Behind Researchers found that stress and depression among female caregivers also has an adverse impact on the children in their care. Nearly a third of the women who showed signs of depression said they had beaten their children or grandchildren when they were, quote, in a bad mood, unquote. But it only made them feel worse because of the feelings of guilt that mixed with stress and frustration that followed. 
By comparison, only one in five caregivers free of depression said they beat the child in their care when they felt bad. Children living with depression-stricken custodians tend to be aggressive and ill-tempered, according to researchers. They also lag behind others in terms of early-stage cognitive development, according to the study. Nearly half of the children under the care of rural women surveyed fell behind in language skills and emotional development compared with the national average for children in their age group. More than a third were slow in cognitive development. Previous REAP studies have also shown that rural children who were mostly left in the care of grandparents lagged behind in early-stage development because the grandparents were illiterate or weren't aware of the need to talk to or stimulate toddlers. For example, one study tracked nearly 2,000 children from some impoverished regions in western China between 2013 and 2015. The children surveyed scored 97 on the Bailey scales of infant development in 2013 when they were 6 to 18 months old, but the score slid to 94.8 a year later and was only 80 in 2015. Children who scored less than 70, which indicated their level of intelligence didn't match their age, accounted for only 7% of the group in 2013, but the number quickly rose to more than one-third by 2015. Two out of five children aged one and a half to three and a half years in rural China showed significant delays in either cognitive or motor development, or both, due to a lack of parental interaction, according to a different REAP study conducted between 2013 and 2015. Many education specialists fear that rural children may fall behind their peers in cities even before they enter first grade. Urban middle-class families in China expose their children to a host of activities such as music, sports, expensive summer camps, and even robotics classes at a young age. But millions of children in rural villages are left in the care of grandparents who are semi-literate. Many are also too weak to care for young children left by parents who move to cities to work, researchers said. Joe, the woman left alone to take care of her one-year-old granddaughter, only had a few years of schooling. She said that it never occurred to her that she needs to do more than feed the baby. I feed her well and cuddle her when she needs me, and that's how I was raised, she said. What else do I need to do? That's this week's show. Thanks for joining us. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina.com with your feedback. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SubChina and produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories by the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Be sure to check out the Seneca Podcast, the current affairs show I host with Jeremy Goldhorn, and follow the news from China every day at SubChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at subchina.com. Take care.